stress is one of the number one things that I see impact thyroid health, in particular Hashimoto's, and that kind of ties into adrenal health as well as hormone health, because if you're stressed, your hormones are jacked up. And when I say hormones, I'm talking about like progesterone and estrogen, all the other hormones in that same pathway. So those would be my top three nutrition, building muscle and stress management. What's up, lovely ladies? Dr. Emily Kybert here with Thyroid Strong Podcast. I am a chiropractor, a mama to Elvis in Brooklyn, and I have Hashimoto's, but it's currently in remission. On this podcast, I share simple, actionable steps with a little bit of tough love on how to lose that stubborn weight, get your energy and your life back, and finally learn how to work out without burning out, living with Hashimoto's. Dr. Carolyn Stone, welcome to Thyroid Strong Podcast. I'm really excited to have you on. We're going to jive about a topic that is near and dear to both our hearts. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. This is going to be a good conversation. Anytime I get to talk about hashis and lifting heavy things, it's a good day. <laughs> so you, as well as myself, both have Hashimoto's. Can you share a little bit about your Hashi journey into like getting diagnosed and all the things. Oh, yeah. So it was kind of interesting. So I was in uh, med school from what, 2008 to 2011. I'm sure as you can imagine, that's very stressful time. And so I had developed by the end of my med school journey, I had developed adrenal issues, hormone issues. I mean, I was overweight and I just felt like crap, just did not feel well. And I'd seen several naturopathic doctors, right? Because that's that's my community. And, you know, they've caught all the adrenal things, did all the nutrition things, but still was missing that Hashi's piece. And I think it was sort of, but not honestly. So in my experience, people are a lot better about it now in terms of checking for antibodies, but I don't think it was as much on people's radar back then because that was a little bit of time ago. Like I remember it being mentioned in med school, but it wasn't like something that struck my interest at that time. I thought I was going to be a doctor focused on diabetes. That was what I was going to do. <laughs> World did not, you know, it didn't turn out that way. That's not what came my way. So yeah, it actually doesn't surprise me that I got missed at that time. A lot of people are more aware of it now. But it was probably, gosh, year or two after graduating from med school, where I was just like, you know, things are kind of getting better, but something's still not right. And I was like, you know, what? I'm running my own labs. Let's see what's up. And sure enough, there it was, popped that positive antibody. And I was like, oh, made so much more sense. I finally understood why I felt the way that I felt. But it was still from that point, I see this with a lot of people. It was a journey. It wasn't like, oh, Within 30 days, I felt like a brand new person. We're talking years and years of healing my gut, healing my adrenals, healing my hormones, doing all those things. And then finally, the thyroid kind of fell into place once I had all those pieces. And so I was on thyroid medication for a period of time. I've been fortunate that I haven't had to stay on it. So I was on it for maybe a year, but I was pretty low dose and I really had to put all the effort in to make sure that I got well and could get off medication. You know, that's not a possibility for everybody. But I, I was one of the, the fortunate ones. And probably because I caught it relatively early on, my antibodies were 
fairly high, but not as high as some of the folks that come to me. Oftentimes, I'm seeing folks in like the thousands. And mine were, I think, under 500 at that point. So it was like, okay, it's positive, but not too crazy. And so the earlier you catch it, the easier it is to treat, right? So I think it's interesting because you talk about, you did these foundational steps, right? Which you talk about, like Mm -hmm. you got to do the foundational things. I think those are really important. Can you share what maybe a couple of like, maybe like top three foundational things that you would take care of with Hashimoto's? Heck yeah. So my top three would probably be, well, for sure, you got to talk about nutrition because gut health is critical for any autoimmune disorder. So definitely for Hashimoto. So nutrition has got to be a big piece of that. And my thoughts on nutrition for Hashis have changed over the years quite a bit, even more so like in the past year. You know, in med school, we were always taught like, oh, you have to have, you know, half your plate veggies, you know, X amount of protein. You've got your carbs, whatever. And followed that for a while. I was like, okay, and it was fine. And I got better, you know, because it was probably better than what I was doing to begin with. And that's probably true for most people, especially if you're going from a standard American diet to that. It's like, oh, like light years better. But as time went on, it's like all that little fine tuning that happens over time. And so end of last year, I actually got COVID. Lucky me. And I had been at that point kind of researching carnivore and animal base. I was seeing a lot more information about it. I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. And so when I got COVID, it was like, well, you know, I always kind of use illness as a, a fresh start. So it's like, well, okay, everything's jacked up right now anyways. Like, let's go baseline and see what happens. And so I, at that point, decided to go animal-based, which, you know, I can give more details on that. But when I did that, that was a game changer for me. And I realized how much better my gut felt. And I started, after I had been doing it for about 90 days, and I started trying it with some of my patients to see how they did on it. And I was seeing really, really, really good results as well. So nutrition is kind of something that's always evolving and always changing. And to me, if you feel good, awesome, keep doing what you're doing. But if something's off, time to try something new. So I would say nutrition is a big one. So animal-based as in like carnivore? So not strict carnivore. So you have like the strict front of our people, like Liver King, right? Like <laughs> Liver King, Sean old. Baker, Paul Saladino. Yeah, and I love that. And I think yeah. that, yeah, like it works for some people. But actually, Paul Saladino is more animal-based because he oh. includes fruits, yes. which carnivores don't, right? He includes some carnivores. I don't, I think some of them do dairy and some of them don't. It's kind of like mixed results on that. Um, So I do dairy. I do well with that. Not everybody with Hashis does, but I tolerate it well. I use honey. Not a lot, but a little bit of honey, especially like as a boost before I work out. So there's there's some nuance there. For a while, yeah, so it's a little different. So for a while I was doing rice, but then I, I felt like my gut still just wasn't quite there. And I cut it out and I was like, man, night and day difference. And now when I have rice, I can see how my gut feels, right? It's different. Yeah. So it's interesting. Going back to the animal base, I personally, Mm -hmm. like that was also my journey because my functional medicine doctor was Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who is like protein, protein, protein. And I find the research confusing, right? And I know nothing, not (laughs) one way is for everyone, but like talking about fiber and helping with like the gut microbiome, like the more fiber you have, the more diversity in your gut. And every time I would have more fiber, even if it was like cooked, I'd be like seven months bloated. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, Tim, what's going on? Can you speak to that or maybe help bring some clarity, especially for the Hashi ladies yeah. who feel like we walk around like <laughs> seven months pregnant all the time sometimes? Well, yeah. Well, and what are we told, right? That if you have constipation, which is really common for people with Hashis and hypothyroidism, they'll eat more fiber, right? You have to have more fiber to poop. And 
I would find that for myself and for other people, the fiber would help for a period of time. And then all of a sudden it was like, nope, everything was stopped up. And it was like worse than when they first started. So that was kind of like my first line, like, okay, maybe this whole fiber thing is not what we think it is, right? Because really, I mean, depends on what type of fiber you're talking about, but fiber is actually a gut mucosal irritant. I was actually just reading about this the other day, and that's how it actually gets things moving through is because it irritates the mucosal lining, and that's how it gets stuff to move through. So it's actually aggravating things, but it helps us poop. You know, so it's like there's kind of this cash 22. Yeah. 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 Because I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Because, you know, again, going back to gut health, super important for people with Hashi's and hypothyroidism. So do we really want to be irritating the gut lining? Right. Yeah. Have you treated because you see a ton of patients. Have you seen a patient or patients do well in a plant based with Hashimoto's? Because I have some people in my program that are strong that do not. They're like, I'm either vegetarian or vegan. This is how I am. And I'm like, okay, but I, I sometimes withhold myself from saying something because maybe there is a certain population that does well on a plant-based diet. That's a great question. And that's kind of the approach that I always take that just because it works for me or works for the majority of people doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone. So I always give people the opportunity. Listen, if you want to be vegan or vegetarian, like let's make sure that you're meeting all those nutritional markers, you know, as much as possible. Make sure you're getting enough B12, enough iron, enough zinc. Some of the things that we commonly see being deficient in that population. And if they can make it work, awesome. But in my experience, there's always something that's missing on a vegan and a vegetarian diet. Like either it's a nutrient deficiency that we're not seeing, gut issues. I see a lot of gut issues, especially with vegan diets. Vegetarian gives us a little bit more wiggle room. So I'm like, okay, eat some, eat some eggs at least, right? And we get like a little bit of something in there. But I do find that often what I see from a lab perspective is that their T3 is never in an optimal range. Mm. I often find that they do not convert well from T4 and a T3. Like their T4 might be good, but that T3 is always a little bit sluggish and their TSH tends to run a little bit higher. And it doesn't seem to make much difference when we adjust their medication or we adjust their medication and they feel like almost a hyperthyroid state, even though they're not. So there's always like this little nuance there, but I'm all for supporting what my patients want. Like, it's not for me to tell them what to do. All I can say is give them information and then they make a good decision for themselves. But I do find that oftentimes there's something missing there. Yeah. Do you find that on that maybe vegan or vegetarian diet to get that protein they need for muscle recovery, for muscle protein synthesis? If it's from a plant-based source, they have to eat so much more, which means so much more calories, which means difficulty losing weight is like the biggest struggle with Hashimoto's that and fatigue. It's like, okay, well, now you're eating more calories, but like the goal was to lose weight. It's like this yeah. butting of heads of the goal versus like maybe ethically what is in their heart. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, part of it is understanding why they're vegetarian or vegan. Like, is it this ethical reason? And then let's break that down. Is it actually more ethical to be vegan or vegetarian, especially when it's putting your health at risk? There are ethical ways, I believe, to eat animals and raise animals and all of those things. But I get it. I get it. Some people, that is just not their jam. I've got patients who they're trying to eat meat and they just don't like the texture, right? So sometimes it's something simple as that. And that's a hard thing to get past. Like even Tina will tell you, she used to be a vegan or at least vegetarian. And so when she first started eating meat, which she prim she's animal-based too, or kind of mostly carnivore, she'll tell you how hard that was at first. And she kind of had to adapt to that. So 
I do find that people do much better with animal-based because it's so much easier to meet those protein markers. Because let's say you're using beans as your primary source of protein. You can only have so much of that before you're impacting your insulin and your blood sugar and your gut, all of those things. So it's, it's tricky to get enough protein. What would be two other foundational things? Yeah. Strength training. (laughs) Strength training. Of course, that has to be on there, right? (laughs) And, you know, I think for women, especially when they think about strength training, they're like, oh, it has to happen in a gym and it has to be like these, you know, heavy lifting. Doesn't have to look like that at all. Like, I think kettlebells are freaking amazing, especially for women. And, you know, it's something easy that you can have at home. So there's no excuse, right? So, When I think about strength training, I'm really talking about like resistance training, and that can look different. So find something that you enjoy that builds muscle. At the end of the day, that's really all I care about. So that would be my number two. And then I would say number three is stress management. Stress is one of the number one things that I see impact thyroid health, in particular Hashimoto's. And that kind of ties into adrenal health as well as hormone health, because if you're stressed, your hormones are jacked up. And when I say hormones. I'm talking about like progesterone and estrogen, all the other hormones in that same pathway. So those would be my top three, nutrition, building muscle and stress management. Let's talk about stress because I feel like stress is inevitable, right? This idea of like having chronic stress or this like low grade stress is to our detriment. But how can we show up more resilient to stress, right? Like we, we can show up in so many ways. We can do like a fight or flight or freeze. We can tend and befriend mm-hmm. like the tribal women that talk around, you know, sit around in a circle and <laughs> bitch about their partners. Yeah. Or we could show up with courage and building resilience. And I think, at least in my experience, and I'd love to hear your experience, when interacting with women who have Hashimoto's, there's two mindsets. One is, I am my diagnosis, and it is just a downward spiral. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. really the more gross mindset women that I meet are, I have a diagnosis, but I'm also me. What tools can I do to build resilience? But I think it's interesting because a lot of people talk about de-stress, stress less, have less stress in your life, but I feel like it's inevitable and it's an everyday thing. So I would love your take on that last foundational piece. Yeah, yeah. So you're absolutely right. Stress is a part of life. We actually need stress. Stress is beneficial in a lot of ways. Exercising is stress right? But we know that ultimately there's a lot of benefit to that. So it's really about, like you said, becoming more resilient to stress, bouncing back quicker, being able to handle that stuff. Now, of course, things going on today are, I'm not going to say unprecedented in any way, but it's certainly new for our generation, right? We haven't really been through a pandemic like this in our generation. So that's kind of interesting. But when I think about managing stress or becoming more resilient to stress, the first thing I think about are all those foundations, right? We know when you work out, like throwing something heavy around always makes me feel better, (laughs) right? Moving that energy through the body. Because I think about stress is just energy that's in the body. So we got to move that energy out in some way. So exercise is a great way to do that. Making sure you've got the right nutrients, because if your brain doesn't have enough healthy fats, doesn't have enough B vitamins, doesn't have enough of those micronutrients, then you're not going to be able to tolerate stress as well. So that's a big piece. And I think about meditation, man, getting people to meditate. (laughs) I don't know why people are so resistant to it. It kind of cracks me up. Everyone's like, oh, I can't do it. 
I'm like, cool. That's why we practice, right? You couldn't ride a bike at some point in your life. Now you can. So you just do it, right? And you learn. I'm always like pretty much every treatment plan has 10 minutes of meditation every day for my people. So dealing with that. But I think a lot of it, too, has to do with community. And that could be your kind of close community with your family. That could be how you interact with the bigger community. Because I find, especially for women, that they often don't have great boundaries. They let people walk over them. They put everybody else ahead of themselves. They don't say no. It's always, yes, I'll get it done. Like, I will take care of everything. Like, I take care of the house. I take care of, you know, all of those things, especially if they've got kiddos. It's very common to see them give it all away and they leave their tank completely empty. So learning how to set boundaries can be huge for people who are trying to better manage their stress. Learning just how to say no and not have to explain yourself. That's a beautiful thing for a lot of folks. I think also letting go, being a mom myself, letting go of the guilt and like the internal shame and blame that happens when you do say no is like also a whole nother step. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's one of those things. The more you do it, the easier it gets. But yeah. And being okay with some dishes in the sink and being okay if your laundry is not, you know, done. Like all those little things, like at the end of the day, do they really matter? No. Like take care of yourself first. Because if you're not well taken care of, you can't do anything for anybody else. Going back to nutrients, how do you test for that? So if you're like, okay, I want like an optimal nutrient profile, how would someone go about with Hashimoto's go about investigating that piece? So some of it you can do like you would your standard labs, like B12 by blood is easy to run, but you have to know your optimal reference ranges because B12, for example, goes from like 230 up to like 1200. But I want people above 600. So, you know, there's some nuance there. Vitamin D, you can run by blood. Zinc, you can run by blood. Iodine is better as a urine test. I've run it by blood before, but it's just not super accurate. So a lot of it you can do by blood. They have some companies, I want to say it's Vibrant, that does like nutrient profiles. There's some nuance there, you know, in terms of accuracy. So, you know, I always kind of keep that in mind. But I think by and large, those types of nutrient profiles at least give you a baseline of some areas that you might need to work on. You know, I'm not a fan of like, oh, every nutrient deficiency requires a supplement. I want to know why are you deficient in the first place? Is it because you're not eating? enough of that nutrient? Are you not absorbing it? That's big for people with Hashis. They might not be breaking their food down appropriately to actually absorb those nutrients. So for me, it's more of, you know, how is your gut functioning? What do some of those lab levels look like? What's the underlying issue for why you're not getting those nutrients? Do you have any thoughts on Great Plains Labs organic acid test? I haven't used Great Plains Labs for a while. I was doing organic acid tests through someone else. Gosh darn it. I can't remember who who it was. I haven't run too many of those lately. It's kind of like I always take everything with a grain of salt, even like standard labs. I'm like, OK, it kind of gives me an idea. But at the end of the day, I got to treat the person sitting in front of me, not their labs. To me, it's more of like a guide than it is a definitive thing. So let's talk about both of our yeah. favorite topic, which is like strength training <laughs> exercise. So I yes. found, <laughs> yeah, I found that conventional medicine, but also a lot of functional medicine docs, The common recommendation for exercise for the Hashimoto's woman is walking, which is great. I mean, walking, yeah, pick at your steps, low impact exercise, Pilates and yoga, even from some functional medicine doctor friends. 
naturopathic mm-hmm. endocrinologist kind of focus. And I was like, wow, this yep. is fascinating. Why is this? And I felt mm-hmm. like it was because, you know, like you don't want to push yourself into a Hashimoto's flare-up or get joint pain, brain fog, or aggravate the autoimmune condition or aggravate adrenal glands that are already taxed. What are your thoughts? I honestly, because I see that all the time, I'm like, do they just think we're a bunch of soft women who can't do shit? Like, we can do hard things. <laughs> like, that's really what I thought about. I was like, yo, like, we can do hard things. Get out of here. Like, women can have babies and they can do, like, you know, we deal with colds way better than men. We already know that. That's scientifically proven. So, I don't know. That's kind of my thought when I hear that. I know for myself, strength training has been critical to getting my Hashimoto's under control. And without that, I would not be where I'm at. Not only just physically, but mental, emotionally as well. Like we know all those mental, emotional benefits for working out, you know, stress and getting your mood lifted, building confidence, all of those things. You can get some of that certainly from, and I think there's a time and a place for yoga and walking and doing all those things, but you got to build muscle. You have to build muscle. If you want a healthy thyroid, there's zero way around it. You have to build muscle. So I think if you ignore that piece of it, you are not going to get your thyroid under control as well as it could be. So for the Hashi listeners that are like, well, why is muscle important for my thyroid? Oh, so many reasons. Okay. Thyroid glands seem like two (laughs) separate things. No, it all works together because we know if you are resistance training, we know that you have better glucose control, hands down. And people with Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism have shown to have a higher risk for impaired glucose metabolism. So making sure that you have stable blood sugars is really important. And resistance training is one of the things that does that. Resistance training stimulates the muscles to produce more insulin receptors, right? Which means a greater ability to bring that sugar into the muscle cells so that they can use it up, right? Use up that energy. And muscle is particularly sensitive to insulin. So again, having that sufficient lean muscle mass improves your insulin sensitivity. And then what else? It improves your resting metabolic rate. We know with Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, everything is slowed down, right? Your bowel time is slowed down. Your energy is slowed down. Metabolism is slowed down. So that's where resistance training can increase that, right? It increases the resting metabolic rate. Huge. What else? It reduces pain. We know a lot of people with Hashimoto's deal with chronic pain, joint pain, muscle pain, muscle weakness. So, And also, kind of speaking to that same point, is just even as a normal part of aging, we start to lose muscle around 35 years old. That's sarcopenia, right? And that increases as we age. So you're going to be losing muscle. You better start now because you're going (laughs) to lose it at some point. So you want to fight against that. Lots of good reasons. And muscle is one of the places where we convert T4 into T3. So if you don't have adequate muscle mass, then that conversion is not going to happen as well. What does your, we were like, okay, little fly on the wall, Carolyn Stone, what does she do for her workout? What does it look like? (laughs) Oh, yeah. So for me, I mean, I I like to be in the gym. I don't know that I could work out at home and I did for a little bit, but I'm just much better like getting out of my space. I'm usually strength training three to four days a week, at least do a little bit of cardio in there. Sometimes it's just lifting weights faster. Sometimes I actually do sprints and do the uh, row machine now that we're moving into. So it kind of changes by season sometimes too. So now that we're moving towards like hiking season in Arizona, I'm going to start building up more of my stamina for hiking. So like getting more, you know, longer walks in. I love to run, but my knees don't love it. So I don't do as much running. But 
Yeah. So I would say three to four days of strength training. And then the other days are just active days. And that can look different depending on the week. Sometimes I'm hiking. Sometimes I'm biking. Sometimes I'm walking. Just depends. When you're at the gym, do you focus on certain kind of moves? Is it more like a bodybuilding style or is it more like compound functional movements? And can you share like what your rep set scheme looks like? Because I think a lot of women assume, okay, if I go to the gym, I have to do like three sets of 15. I think we have some (laughs) cultural dialogue in our heads sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I really focus, you know, I don't do a fancy workout and it doesn't change. You know, I really like to focus on those baseline movements, those compound movements and get really good at those and build in those. And then every once in a while, I hire my trainer and he can put together some new moves for me just because I'm getting bored. But that's not really that often. And so for me, I like to do things in supersets because it just, I don't know, it works for me. And so by supersets, I mean doing like two or three exercises paired together and rotating between those, right? So you do a superset, another superset. So I'm usually doing like three supersets during a workout. And my reps will look like, usually I start with like eight reps and then I'll put the weight up a little bit, six reps, right? Weight up a little bit more as many as I can get until my body gives out, which is usually around four. So I usually increase in weight during those sets, but I'm decreasing the number of reps that I'm doing. So I don't do a lot of high rep stuff unless I'm uh, maybe just kind of on a break week where I'm taking things a little bit slower, not focus on building muscle so much, more just kind of, you know, an active rest week where I'm doing lower weights. Do you find that doing heavier weight, lower reps is better on your joints? Because I think a lot of women who've never picked up a weight assume, ooh, a heavy weight might injure me. That's scary. I'd rather use a lighter weight and do 100 reps over five pound weight or something. No, I've actually found that it's much better for my joints. So like I mentioned, I've got some old knee injuries from playing soccer and they've actually been a lot better since I started lifting heavy. When I was doing lighter weights, it was like everything always felt kind of tweaked. But I think it also when people worry about getting injured, that's where a coach comes in handy or having a program somebody that can walk you through those basic movements so that you're not hurting yourself. But heavy weights, you're not really going to hurt yourself unless you're the only time I see people hurt themselves. It's mostly guys. And they're like trying to train for some competition. Like this is my brother, right? He, My older brother, he was training for something injured himself. And then he was out for like a year. I'm like, was it worth it? Was it worth it to go that high? So, you know, there's a balance there always. (laughs) Do you find the timing of your workout, like in terms of the time of your day? Because sometimes I recommend women work out earlier in the morning if they can, right? If they have a little bit of like cortisol disruption Mm -hmm. and or if they're like tired, but wired at night, like try to keep their workout before 2 p.m. So they work out too late. They might feel like at night. Yeah, it's very individualized. Like, I don't think there's one way that works for everybody. To me, I'd rather you get it in than, you know, worry too much about timing unless it's causing an issue, right? Like you said, if somebody's working out nine, it's too stimulating. Okay, fine. But like I work out after work because what works better for me, I use my brain a lot in the morning. (laughs) So I really focus on like brain stuff in the morning. And then at the end of the day, it's like, okay, now I can let all that energy go, all the things that I dealt with throughout the day. It helps me. For me, it's even though it's stimulating, it's actually calming at the end of the workout because I'm getting rid of all that energy. And I usually end with like sauna and a cold shower. So that kind of helps regulate my cortisol a little bit better. But honestly, I'd rather just people get it in and not worry so much about the little nuances. We can, you know, we change it up depending on what they need. Did you always used to lift weights or was this like a newer endeavor? I was always an athlete in high school and you know, was always active in college. 
But go figure. It was when I was in med school that like my activity went down dramatically because, you know, just like faith. I'm like, of all the times, like that's when I should have been my healthiest. <laughs> like I knew more than I ever knew about health, but that's when I was my unhealthiest. So I've always thought that was kind of interesting. So during med school, I just was not as active as I should have been. I wasn't lifting weights or doing anything like that. I did all that for sure growing up, but it wasn't until oh, it was like close to when the pandemic kind of started. So that would have been what, 2020-ish, like end of 2019, early 2020 was when I really started focusing on the strength training piece. I kind of had, when I was first diagnosed with Hashi's, I kind of took it slow because I knew I needed to preserve my adrenals. So I started with gentle stuff like yoga, basic yoga, like yoga nidra, where you're essentially just taking a nap, right? <laughs> so I started with that. And then I started doing some more like power yoga, <laughs> building more muscle. I was like, oh, OK, I can do more things. And then I was doing more like HIIT workouts for a little while and I was getting good results, but it just wasn't what I needed. And that's when I moved into strength training. So it's kind of been a journey over the past few years. For the women who are listening in who might be on the more sedentary side are deconditioned mm -hmm. like right there they maybe get a little bit of a walk what would you recommend for them if they were like okay i want to start working out i know if i overdo it i get brain fog and my joints hurt like what do you typically do because right i feel like there's a spectrum of hashi ladies it's like very sedentary mm -hmm. or it's like type a and they actually need to like dial it back like what would you <laughs> tell that maybe the more sedentary women listening yeah. in. Yeah, that's totally the two spectrums that I see too. So it's funny that you see that. Yeah. So for the sedentary folks, if they're not doing anything at all, I just have them start with a daily walk. Walk around the block. It's going to be further than what you're doing now. So start simple. Because really in the beginning, it's more about, no, no, heck no. Like just start somewhere. I'd rather you do something small and actually achieve it and build that momentum than to worry about meeting some mark that it's totally unattainable for you. So in the beginning, when someone's getting started, it's more about building the habit than anything, building the routine, because getting that consistency is what's going to carry you through long term. So I want to build that consistency first. We can always build later. So start with just doing something consistently, whether that's walking or maybe you've got a yoga video that you do on YouTube, whatever it is. Start simple. One of my favorite ways to get people started with building muscle is using resistance bands because they're so easy and they're cheap. And there's lots of resources online for that. So I have them start with resistance bands. I tell them, like, watch your watch your show, whatever TV show you like, right, at night, and then do your resistance bands while you're sitting there. And start small. You could do a 10-minute workout twice a day if you wanted. It doesn't always happen have to happen in one fell swoop. Because I think that's the other thing that people, you know, get caught up in is like, okay, I don't have an hour that I can spend in the gym. Cool, you don't have to. That's the cool thing, right? So teaching them that you can split it up and you can do little things and build the habit first. Yeah. I talk about microdosing your workout. Like if you can't do it all in one swoop, <laughs> like do five yeah. minutes, then do the next five minutes, then do 10 minutes. And like that adds up to 20 minutes in your day. Totally. And the benefits are the same. Yeah. And I think people don't know that. They're like, oh, if it wasn't that like hot, sweaty mess, you know, afterwards, then it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't a workout. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally not true. Just get your body moving, build muscle. I don't care how you do it. Just make it happen and be consistent. Are there other tools that you recommend for the Hashi crowd outside of the foundational tools? Like things that people could like, like sauna, cold, you know, because there's so many like fans oh, yeah. out there, right? There's like cold exposure right now is like a big <laughs> thing. <laughs> oh, it's a big thing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think all that stuff is super cool. And, you know, I have a sauna blanket and I've got a red light. But like, honestly, I didn't even have any of that stuff until like the past year. <laughs> 
It was more just like, oh, that's cool. Like, let me add that in and see if it makes a difference. I always try to start with things that are cheap uh, or free because then everybody has access to them. So getting sunlight, easy. Get out and get some sunshine. Get some morning sunshine to help regulate your circadian rhythm. Get some afternoon sunshine to build your vitamin D. How easy is that? Cold showers, also free. So I do actually really love cold showers, especially if like they've got nodules running cold water over over the thyroid can help reduce that inflammation. So I love incorporating that. But I also feel like sometimes with things like sauna and red light and all of that, that people feel like, oh, I can't do that thing. So I can't control my Hashis. Those are just icing on the cake. Like they're not the main things that are going to get people where they need to be. They're helpful. I don't like when people get caught up in thinking that they have to have all these fancy things to get well. Focus on the basics, you know, getting electrolytes, something as simple as that, having regular electrolytes like that can be a game changer for people with Hashimoto's. Eh, There's fancy tools out there, but I don't focus on those too much. Yeah, you talk about the foundational stuff, which I love because I think it often gets overlooked. Like the tool, like I had someone texting me, should I get the iWatch or the Aura Ring for tracking my steps and my sleep? And I was like, <laughs> like, neither will probably make a huge dent in your Hashimoto's diagnosis. Exactly. Exactly. Like, they're cool things. And it's cool to, like, have an Aura Ring and track that stuff. But at the end of the day, is it going to be vital for you to manage your Hashis? I don't think so. Yeah. So I've noticed, going back to strength training, clinically working with clients in real life as a chiropractor, that I haven't heard people talk about, but I wanted to know your take on it. So I noticed a lot of autoimmune population and I would check what's moving too much, what's not moving enough. And I would find that a lot of the autoimmune women would have an element of tissue laxity or hypermobility. And I would check, you know, in the physical mm. therapy world, it's called a bait and score where you're like checking the elbows and the knees and the thumbs. And it wasn't everyone, but it was a large population of like the autoimmune women coming in with this kind of tissue hypermobility. And I was wondering, you know, from your clinical knowledge, if there was any connection in any certain way to that. I mean, I know certain, you know, being hypothyroid, it's harder to maintain muscle mass. Mycotoxin exposure can lead to, you know, lower muscle mass. But yeah, I don't know. I was wondering... Curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. So for you, when you say um, autoimmune, is it like mostly Hashis or is it a variety of autoimmune folks that you see that with? Yeah. I mean, it was mainly Hashis, women with rheumatoid arthritis and some lupus patients. I mean, I would say it's interesting that you notice that. I'll have to kind of pay more attention to that in my clinic. My thought is that I think you nailed it is that it probably has to do with muscle mass. They just don't have enough muscle mass to hold the pieces together, so to speak. And so there might be a little bit more laxity, which is kind of funny because a lot of those conditions come with joint stiffness, right? But you can have that joint stiffness, but also have laxity. So that's kind of an interesting perspective. But my guess is that it has to do with the the muscles. I wanted to talk a little bit about adrenal insufficiency. I feel like adrenal fatigue is like a dirty word these days. <laughs> for some reason oh I, I know it's like you want to say it because everyone recognizes it but it's not the right term yeah, yeah. like adrenal stuff <laughs> so oftentimes thyroid 
stuff will go hand in hand with adrenal stuff. And when you are working with your Hashi ladies, which one do you address first? Or do you address them at the same time in terms of like treatment plan? Oftentimes I'm addressing them at the same time, depending on the severity. Like if somebody needs thyroid medication, they need thyroid medication, right? But I'm also going to work on all those foundational things as well as the adrenals. So kind of depends on the case. If it's, let's say they've got Hashi's, but it's not hypothyroid yet, then maybe we're focusing mostly on the adrenals at that point, do a little bit of thyroid work. But really, if you're treating the root cause and you think that the adrenal dysfunction or HPA axis dysfunction, if you think that that's the issue, then you have to target that, right? It's got to be a big portion of your plan. But that's, you know, when you're a naturopathic doctor, and I'm sure you see this in the chiropractor world as well, it's like you don't just like hyper-focus on one thing. You got to treat the whole person. You know, you kind of find like, let's say somebody has what I often see is adrenal dysfunction, hormone imbalance, and Hashimoto's. I see those three together. The hormone imbalances is almost always because of the adrenals. So a lot of times I'm focusing on the adrenals because I know the rest will fall into place. But I'm usually doing a little bit in every single one of those realms. Just for the women who maybe haven't seen a naturopath or seen someone who looks at them from like a functional medicine perspective, what would it mean to treat adrenal dysfunction? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, there's different levels. Kind of look at it in phases. Adrenal fatigue, phase one, phase two, or phase three. Phase three is the worst. And phase one's like, okay, you're just getting started, right? So that's easier. So if it's, let's say, a phase one, a lot of times that's just a matter of, one, dealing with whatever stressors they have. So putting things into place like meditation and exercise, maybe giving them some herbal support, right? Once you get into phase two and phase three, that's often where you have to pack a little bit bigger punch. So that might mean, you know, the type A Hashi's women, They got to dial their exercise back a little bit. They got to dial back all the different functions that they're going to or projects that they're working on. So really kind of going inward and focusing on that. With those folks, you know, I might be using herbs, but I'm usually going to be using what we call adrenal glandulars, where it's kind of like thyroid glandulars, but it's just adrenal gland instead, right? So I don't know how much your audience knows about thyroid medication, but you've got the um, natural desiccated thyroid, like NP thyroid or nature thyroid, those are glandulars essentially. So you can get the same thing in adrenal form. I often find that people are phase two, phase three, they need a little bit more support. And it takes time. That's the biggest thing with adrenal dysfunction is that it takes time to heal that. Like phase one, okay, maybe in a few months you're back to feeling like yourself. If we're talking late phase two, phase three, we're looking at like six months to a year to really recover completely. doesn't mean you won't feel better before then, but it's it's a long road. Which I think people, for me, it took about nine months even to just get some energy back. When I started addressing the Hashimoto's, I think people, they're like, a year? You're like, yeah, <laughs> a year. <laughs> how, how long have you not felt yep. good to, you know, start feeling good? Exactly. Yeah. One of my mentors used to say, you know, you can't walk 10 miles into the woods and come out in five. So when did you really start feeling like things went downhill for you? And think about the amount of time that it's going to take to not necessarily undo it, but heal that, right? 100%. Dr. Stone, thank you so much. It has been so fun chatting with you. Where can people find you and how can they work with you? Yeah. So the easiest place to find me is on Instagram because all my things are there. So it's Dr. Stone A Z or D-R-S-T-O-N-E-A-Z. There's a link in my bio there. So in the link, you'll see an opportunity to work with me one-on-one if you're in Arizona. I just started a group coaching program. So this round is already kind of launched and spoken for, but that'll come up again. And I'm just starting to dabble with kind of online coaching. So it wouldn't be a patient-physician relationship, but more like client health coach type 
thing. I haven't fully launched that yet, but that's kind of coming your way. So if you're on Instagram, you'll find all the things. You can get on my email list as well. I give them extra stuff, but all that's in my my bio there. Amazing. Thank you so much. It was so great having you on. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Any Anytime we can help more people, I'm, I'm down for it. So thank you. If you enjoyed this episode or even learned just one new piece of information to help you on your Hashimoto's journey, would you do me a huge favor? Rate and review Thyroid Strong Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you used to listen in to this podcast and share what you liked. Maybe you learned something new. And if you didn't like it, well, shoot me a DM on Instagram, Dr. Emily Kybird. I read and respond to every single DM. I truly believe all feedback is good feedback, even the ugly comments. If you're interested in joining the Thyroid Strong course, a home workout program using kettlebells and weights, where I teach you how to work out without the burnout, go to dremilykybird.com forward slash TS waitlist. You'll get all the most up-to-date information on when the course launches and goes live, special deals and early access bonuses for myself and my functional medicine doctor friends. Again, dremilykyber.com forward slash TS waitlist. I hope to see you on the inside, ladies.